Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. Today we are doing something a little bit different. We are starting possibly a new series, but we are going to be looking at the hard sayings of Jesus. So these are the sayings that um, are either problematic, like, you know, you hear it and you go, oh man, I really don't want to do that, Jesus, (laughs) or just really confusing, or if you forget about all of the theology that has since come out of the Bible... And think about how this would have been heard 2,000 years ago when Jesus first said it. Might be a little bit gross. So, <laughs> so what we are going to do is we've found a bunch of these hard sayings. We wrote them down on little pieces of paper, and we stuck them in a hat. So we are going to randomly draw some of these. We don't know what they are. I mean, we kind of have an idea of what all's in the hat, but we don't know what we're going to be talking about. And we're just going to see how many we can do in the next 30 minutes. I'm excited. <laughs> so am I. Um, so here we go. We're starting in Matthew eight twenty two or Luke nine sixty. Let the dead bury the dead. Wow. I mean, this feels a little bit like the beginning of a game show, doesn't it? Like we just had Alex Trebek give us what the title is there. So you said we can find this in Luke and Matthew. Where are Luke we going? Luke and Matthew. Matthew chapter eight verse twenty two or Luke chapter nine verse sixty. Okay. Well. Um, if it's helpful, I've got it right in front of me right here, and I'll read that out loud if that helps while everybody else... I've got yeah, from Matthew. I've got Matthew if you want to go... I have Luke. Great, okay. So this is in one of those scenes where uh, would-be followers of Jesus are approaching him, and this comes at the end of a little paragraph of um, starting with verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, let, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, Luke is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. So this is Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, him being Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. All right, so we've sort of opened ourselves up a big can of worms here. So go go us for finding really good, juicy worms to look at. Maybe it would be worth it to just have said it out loud. Why might someone find this to be a hard saying of Jesus? Let's let's just get it out in the open. What what makes this difficult as this hits you? Well, I mean, as, as somebody who's gone through a lot of grief personally, you know, the idea of not having the chance to grieve mm. over some, you know, let the dead bury their own dead. It's kind of like Jesus, like, it doesn't care... It seems that he doesn't care about what's going on in this person's life. Right. And just saying, no, you need to drop everything and follow me. I don't care who has died or who, what's going on with your life. You need to follow me right here, right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is maybe a point to say, especially maybe for a, a group like ours, we three are on this table, who are, uh, to some degree trained in pastoral care, trained to think about how people are feeling when they're going through difficult times. So, like, this violates all the rules we've been taught about how to be empathetic and listening and caring. And when someone talks about grieving, we're supposed to be... And Jesus, like, has none of that, right? Okay, okay. So I have heard the theory that 
it's possible that this man's father was still living. Right. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. this was the man trying to explain, I still have family obligations, you right. know, um, let me go and fulfill those before I follow you. And this is very much Jesus saying, nope, all of those loyalties which our culture places upon, which is family, honor, duty, you know, stuff like that, um, is less important than the work I am doing. Yeah. Um, not any easier to hear, for sure, but yeah. That father may or may not be dead. Right, and I think that's an important piece here. That like I, I've sometimes heard that uh, that background piece as a way of kind of softening what Jesus says, and I don't think I think it explains without softening. Because like yeah. if the guy's father is still alive, he yeah, what he's saying is I still have family obligations, and I want to be a you know good little Jewish boy. I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do, take care of your family and you know uh, the family business and all that kind of thing. And then when all that's taken care of, then I'll come follow you. And yeah, Jesus is saying like, nope, I I allegiance goes to me if you're going to follow me. Which I think is fair because I don't think the man's family obligations would lessen with the death of his father. Exactly. Because especially because the way that this is being phrased then it makes it sound like he's the eldest son. So if he is the eldest son, his father dies, his family obligations just gets heightened because suddenly he's the head Mm -hmm. of the family, he has to take care of his mother, he has to take care of any younger brothers and sisters who aren't adults yet. Right. So, you know, I don't think that the family obligations would end ever. Right. And when you think about the stories we get of Jesus calling his other disciples, there's every reason to believe they do have family connections that they have to make choices about what will come first. And again, this, again, we may be digging ourselves deeper in a hole because this is still difficult stuff for us to hear, but James and John are literally working their family business with their dad, Zebedee, who is alive and still needs them for work. And Jesus says, come follow me. And they drop their nets and go follow him. I mean, you yeah, got to figure out. Yeah, Zeb's like, hey, you just took my, you know, my workforce here. And uh, there's a story early on in the Gospels that uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, which assumes then that Peter probably has had or still has a wife. And that also may involve kids in the picture. And yet he drops whatever he's been doing to go follow Jesus. Now, again, we don't know that that meant we don't get any impression that Jesus forbade them from talking to their families again. It's not like he said, you will never talk to them again. Not at all. For sure. Peter, they were at Peter's house. Exactly. Exactly. They clearly were talking to Peter's family as Jesus was healing mm-hmm. Peter's mother-in-law. Right? So it's not like, follow me and you'll never see your family again, but it does mean a change of allegiance, right? Mm-hmm. That if the old picture was the way to live a good life was you made a lot of money and you left, you know, respectable inheritance for your children and you became this well-known pillar of, you know, excellence in your community. And Jesus, like, pretty unapologetically says, yep, I've, I've come to say I'm more important than that. And what he's come to bring is more important than that life mm-hmm. that looks like success with the 2.5 kids in the white picket fence. And while I've heard, like you all have, that this man's father was possibly still alive Mm -hmm. at the time, even if his father had died, even just very recently, Jewish custom says that you you have to you have a year's worth of grieving period for someone. And so, what is Jesus saying then for somebody who is in that you know process of grief and? Maybe, you know, it's, it's recent grief. Maybe he still has nine months of, of grieving left to do. Right. And yet Jesus is saying, no, I want you to come and follow me. I think it's, it's saying how important the work of Jesus is, and there's a limited time to get that right. work done in. And that Jesus sees, I mean, like, in, I think in a very real sense, this is a window to Jesus sees the work he's come to do, the reign of God that he's come to announce is 
infinitely more important than the stuff that the world labels important or successful, even down to living the good life or being a good, respectable person. And Jesus, yeah, doesn't make any apologies about that. So it, it doesn't necessarily make it any easier for us to hear, but it does, in a sense, it's not a hard saying in the sense of, I don't know why Jesus would have said something like this. It fits perfectly with somebody who really thinks he's come to bring the reign of God, who's come to bring the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's exactly what you would expect if someone really thought they were bringing in the reign of God. You drop everything to be a part of that. It, it like there are times in our own lives probably where just we are well aware whatever the need is you drop whatever you're doing and you pick up and go you know like for for us in pastoral ministry sometimes the phone rings and we know we have to be off to the hospital right away or we're called to be with somebody right away and it's a drop everything else kind of thing and we have to learn sort of you sort of like hone that ability to know what falls into the category of this can wait and what falls into the category of I would drop everything to go do sometimes it's not work stuff sometimes it's the phone rings and it's the good news you're waiting for from your you know family member and yeah you drop everything to go be with them or, uh, you know, your uh, kid falls and scrapes your knee and you don't say, well, I'll come attend to you after my TV show is done. You drop everything. And if we get that already with regular, ordinary, you know, household and work life stuff, then Jesus is just saying, yeah, do the same thing when it's me. That I'm, Jesus, is Jesus really the most important thing? Is, is, is what he comes to bring more important than the other stuff uh, of our life? That's difficult because we don't want to have to make that choice. We kind of want to be able to do the I can have it all kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes we can, and sometimes we have to go. Nope, I only have so many minutes in the day. What gets my what gets my time? What gets my hours? Uh, what gets my focus? I mean, like, we all want to write, write the great American novel and, you know, sculpt an art, you know, and uh, leave a great legacy or whatever, and we get so much in our life. What do we pick to do? And as we look around this passage, you know, right before and right after, there's other circumstances of, of sacrificing for the kingdom and for the ministry of Jesus. You know, right before, in both Luke and Matthew, we, we see Jesus basically saying, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. You know, following Jesus means not just necessarily sometimes leaving our family when Jesus calls us to do that, but it means, you know, that we don't necessarily have a place to, to call home anymore. Right, right. Not just family. Like, for, for me, I know you all tend to stay in calls a little bit longer than the Methodists do. But, you know... When I signed up to be a Methodist minister, I knew that every so many years I'm going to be moving. Right. And so I don't really, you know, my home is wherever I'm planted at the moment, but all that could change right June. Right, right, right. And th- I think that's an important piece that, like, the the loss not only of a physical structure may be a part of what risk, but the loss of, like, the sense of security you have. You know, like, it, it's easy to, to build a picture of, here's my life, here's how it's going to go, it's going to follow this cookie-cutter plan, and here's, you know, and Jesus sort of calls away, uh, calls us away from any of the stability that goes in those other familiar comforting kind of things that, no, I, I'm asking you to trust that I will be your stability and I will provide uh, your sense of security. As well as, like, there's got to be a whole lot of, like, shame pieces going on, too. Like, that, that Jesus uh, and basically declares, I'm homeless. I mean, like, Jesus says, like, I'm someone who's, I don't have a, a home to go to. Jesus wanders. And if you're going to go with me, yeah, you're going to get known as those good-for-nothing, lazy, wandering, you know, homeless people. Um and like that means a certain giving up of the status of oh they've got that really nice house or oh look what they've done with it. I love what they've done with their kitchen and like we're not going to be the people who um, whose lives are determined or whose value and worth is judged by how nice our kitchens are uh, if what's most important to us is the ability to go where Jesus calls whether whether it means geographically or just that we choose to use our resources differently because mm-hmm. we're not all about what I really want is people to like my kitchen. <laughs> Um, I think that there's there's a word of good news in, in all this. As hard as saying as this is, 
And, and it, it goes uh, hand in hand with the passage you mentioned that right before the verse where Jesus has let the dead bury their dead is where Jesus says to another would-be disciple, you know, foxes have holes and birds have uh, nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head, is that Jesus doesn't ever call anybody to do more than he has already done first. Mm. Like Jesus never, like this isn't like pledging a fraternity where mm. Jesus just wants yeah. people to do a weird stunt to get into the club or something like that. Jesus is calling people to embody the same kind of life that he's embodying. So it's not like Jesus Jesus sits in a mansion and goes, well, you have to prove me your worth, so do something ridiculous or sacrifice something for me, and then I'll judge if you love me enough. It's, if you're going to follow me, that means you go where I go, and I don't have a permanent home, so you'll be wandering with me, dependent on the provision of Joanna, the steward of Chuzza, and you know, all those other women who provided for their movement, and we'll wander, and other people will accuse us of being mooches, and of being lazy, and of you know being wine-bibbers and gluttons, like they're always accusing Jesus of. To, to go where Jesus goes means you're going to get painted with the same set of accusations they kept throwing at Jesus. And so this, let the be- dead bear their dead, isn't like Jesus setting the bar saying, my club is so exclusive, nobody else can get in. But to say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to live this life that I live. And Jesus had to leave other stuff behind too. Like, including his own mother, who, as the Gospels record it, is alive, even at the point that Jesus is on the cross. So it's not like Jesus gets to say, let me take care of all the loose ends, and I've got everything else taken care of, then I can finally go off on my spiritual quest. Life is still happening, and the spiritual quest that the kingdom of God happens right in the midst of it. So not maybe uh, any easier necessarily here, but at least I hope there's a certain logic to uh, to what Jesus is saying here, that like Jesus actually takes his movement seriously, that he's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Or his message. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah the, 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 the kingdom or the reign of God that he's come to, to, to bring about. Which is... I mean, he's a big part of us. <laughs> right, yeah. Try to insinuate that Jesus isn't important in all of this, but that, yeah, there are more important things than family, which... I think it is hard for anybody with a family to hear, whether that that family is, you know, parents or um, a spouse and children. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's hard for us to hear when we have a family and we want to put our family first. And it doesn't mean that, again, like, it doesn't mean that for all of us that, like, you have to sacrifice that there's no possibility of having family, but it does mean that, like, the idea is that they get incorporated into this new community as well, too. So, like, yeah, children are welcome in this new family, this new thing called the, the community of Jesus, but the relationships change, too, where we aren't just defined by our biology anymore. Is this one of the verses that is part of the reasoning for Roman Catholic priests being celibate? celibate? I, I imagine that, like, sort of in the deep structure of the, of the, the, the hierarchy, some of that idea is that, to, yeah, to, and maybe similar to the, the theology that goes on in, in uh, the itinerant ministry approach of, of Methodists, is that you're called to be wherever the, the church or the people of God needs you, and that one of the ways you put a check on family becoming an idol or the, you know, here's my little house and my, you know, uh, the, the, the way you, you keep that from becoming more important is the possibility you might get uprooted and go somewhere, as well as the the limits on uh, clergy relations, uh, family or, or what, what have you. And I mean, like, I, I get that. There are times where I feel the tension of, like, so-and-so is in the hospital and also there's a need at home and how do you decide where you go and how do you spend your time? And that's, that's there's times where I go, oh, I get it why monks for all those hundreds of years like, yeah, this is so much easier if you don't have the worry of I need to put the kids to bed when I get home. There, there are things you lose in the trade-off too. If you don't have the the experience to be able to talk about family life, it's harder, It's I, I find it's harder to give, say, like um, marriage advice uh, except for the fact that I've been in relationships with people. If I, if I had 
only ever lived as a monastic in a little cloistered room somewhere, mm-hmm. it would be, I think, disingenuous for me to tell people how to make their relations work. As a single pastor in the room, yes. <laughs> it, it, change, it changes the dynamic at least a little bit. Um, so it, it, I, there's, there's that trade-off. Maybe, but I think, that's, yeah. I think that's some of the logic behind why that move got made those centuries ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I, I think this maybe is a, a point to note, that nowhere in the scriptures, in the Old and New Testament, is there a ruling against those who were leaders in the church being married. In fact, you get guidance like they should only be married one spouse at a time. Um, But that assumes that they were married, and there's plenty of, we've talked in previous episodes about early uh, leader couples in the early church as well. So it wasn't just Paul the loner out on his own, but there's you know uh, Priscilla and Aquila and others who were uh, uh, presumably families or heads of households together. Um, But, I mean, that that said... um, yeah, there, there are costs, there's difficulties in how you do the judging of where do I spend my, my time and my day. And maybe, maybe like for all of us, not just for us who wear pastor's hats, um, this, this saying of Jesus forces each of us in a moment-by-moment way to take really serious looks at what are the things that are worth my time and energy in my life. And it, it's difficult because we don't want to have to cut things out. We don't want to say, I don't get to watch extra tell. I could use my time more wisely than just watching more TV. Or I could use my um, money more wisely than just buying more video games. Or whatever things we spend our time or energy on. And to hear that Jesus keeps calling us again to sort of pare out the mm-hmm. dead stuff and to, what are the things that we've allowed to become more important than being a part of the community of Jesus. That's difficult. You, you just mentioned paring out the dead stuff, and I'm thinking, you know, going back to this and, and the idea of, you know, letting that dead stuff stay behind, mm-hmm. you know, and not carrying it with us. Um, I, I don't know what that means. This is, a, you know, one of those half-formed thoughts that we sometimes come up with, but just that uh, struck me with this passage, you know, let the dead bury their dead. You know, leave those things that um, deadness will, will drag down life. Mm-hmm. It will bring mm-hmm. down life and, and living um, just like on a plant where you need to prune off the, the dead branches and things so the plant can grow, you know, we leave behind, if we're, if we're willing to sacrifice those things that are pulling us away from Jesus, as good as they might be, right. um, that's the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to make. Right. And the, the maybe difficult admission, I've heard it often said like the cliche that the 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 good is often the opposite or the, the enemy of the best. That they're, mm-hmm. you know, that... that mm-hmm. uh, that sometimes they're all perfectly fine. No one is saying it's sinful to watch television. Nobody's saying it's sinful to spend your money on video games or, or to have a nice kitchen or whatever. But the question is, when there are those moments where um, we're forced to choose, I have enough energy or resource for this or this, do I say, sorry, Jesus, you get the back seat. I really want those granite countertops. Or do we go, you know what, the countertops are less important in the big yeah. scheme of things. Um, and discover that not because they are sinful or wicked countertops, uh, but because anything that... that pulls us away from the new kind of life that, that uh, Jesus has come to offer to bring. And like you say, it's, it's Jesus' person and the message and the kingdom all together in one. These are all, all kind of caught up together. And it's a new way of living together. Like Almost like when you get these glimpses in the book of Acts of how the early church community in Jerusalem lived. Like, yeah, there's certain sacrifices that people made when they would like sell their property and say, we're going to share this. It wasn't that owning their property was wicked or sinful and nobody said it was, but they were convinced that this new kind of life that was breaking out around them was worth pouring themselves and their energy into. It meant that they've got new connections and new, like Jesus talks about, you'll get a thousand times over brothers and sisters in this new community um, for whatever you have to leave behind. Um, But yeah, it also meant that they were willing to 
offer those things to the life of the community so that people could get fed in their neighborhood rather than being able to pass on a noble inheritance in a 501k or something like that to somebody. And that's that's a difficult thing because I think in some ways this is also about the ability to give up on I have to leave an important legacy to someone behind me and maybe, nope, I'm, it's more important that I be able to spend myself, my energy, my resources on living human beings right now. Yeah. Feel like we've done that one enough? I think so. All right, let's draw from the hat again. Here we go. And we have the unjust steward from Luke 16. All right. The story of the unjust steward is one of the parables that Jesus tells. Yeah, I have it. Um, Okay, so um, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus told the disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? The master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Nine hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred and fifty. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into your eternal eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly, worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So in this passage, like the, the story seems to be the most problematic, and then mm-hmm. Luke has grouped along with that other verses or sayings of Jesus that have to do with being entrusted things and being a good or faithful steward of what you have. Those later sayings are probably a little bit easier for us to get the idea. If you're not trustworthy in little, you won't be trustworthy in a lot. Yeah, okay, I get that, Jesus. But the heart of the story that, that is so difficult or that it may, leaves us scratching our heads is that Jesus has told the story in which the central character is a cheat, he gets fired for being a cheat, he cheats more, and then gets praised for being a cheat, and becomes a positive role model on at least that point, and then the story has a very abrupt ending. That's it. So, like, a couple of ways, this is a hard saying. It's hard exactly to even follow the plot. Wait a second, why is this guy being praised? And then it seems like Jesus is heaping positive compliments on a guy for being a crook, and that that seems a little bit weird to us, probably, right? Yeah, I mean, because I think, you know, at, before the additional sayings at the very end of the story of the, the dishonored steward, dishonest steward, you know, Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Like, what? what? <laughs> right, right. This is why I'm not a preach lectionary. <laughs> now, see, and, and for me, this is a little bit of inside baseball for us as preachers, but for me, this is one of the things I really, really like about the challenge of preaching from a lectionary that, that requires, like, periodically to, like, spend time with texts that are difficult rather than, like, 
every week is John 3.16 because I feel like that's an easy, like, you know, or whatever you might pick as your favorite, um, that this, this forces us to do some stretching and to let Jesus do some of that, you know, hmm, turn things upside down for us. And I guess I think as a way to get into this, the, the really, really important thing in the back of my mind is that the parables aren't morality plays. And I think, mm, I, yeah. I, at least I grew up with a certain amount of assuming the parables of Jesus were basically first century goofus and gallant. You know, like, don't be like this bad person, you should be like this good person. Mm. You know, um, you know, goofus doesn't set the table, but gallant helpfully says, and that every story there is a hero who did something good and a villain who did something bad, and that Jesus' job or Jesus' primary goal was just about making people be moral. And they're not Aesop's fables. I mean, I, I'm a fan of fables, and I, we read the Aesop's fables to our kids, too, because I also want them to be good, decent human beings, too, and learn life lessons like slow and steady wins the race. But Jesus' parables don't work like that, and in some ways they're closer to jokes, I think. that They're, they're intended to have a sense of punchline that are meant to destabilize your way of seeing the world and to reorient us around Jesus' new way of seeing the world. And that mean, mean that the central character of Jesus' stories may not be commended for something that is meant to be literally applicable for, oh, so, so, so we're all supposed to go cheat at things. But what Jesus has the main character commended for, his word is, it gets translated as shrewdly. The master commends him for acting shrewdly. And I think the gist is he knows he's got to get while the getting's good, right? That if, mm-hmm. if a crook knows, I've been a cheat all my life, I've been a cheat at this, I've got only a little bit more time before I'm kicked out, I'm going to keep, I'm going to try and, you know, get as much uh, good leverage for myself as I can while I'm in the position. And that the only thing this guy is praised for is that he knows how to take advantage of this situation while he can because he won't always have it. And then Jesus goes on to say, look, crooks know how to get while the getting's good. How come the children of light miss every opportunity in front of them? And I, I think, at least for me, that's kind of how it hits that so often we are so afraid we folks who want to be about God's work are so afraid of doing the wrong thing or messing up or what if I accidentally do it wrong or what if it fails that we miss opportunities in front of us and if a crook knows to you got us a narrow window of time you got to get while the getting's good we don't do that instead we've got well at least I didn't do anything wrong and therefore I did nothing and that often is ends up being a worse tragedy you know mm-hmm. that that we're af- so afraid of messing up or of sinning or of failing or something that we do nothing and we forget that um, uh, sins of omission are just as, as uh, bad a thing as sins that we commit. So I think what I struggle with this parable is if I wasn't told at the beginning of the parable that he was fired for being a cheat and then have the bit at the end that, you know, you know about dishonest wealth and you can't serve both God and wealth, I would think that this was a story about a man who was being generous that here's this man, he is um, settling his master's debts, he's calling in the debtors Mm -hmm. and asking, how much do you owe? And the person says, oh, I owe this much oil or this much wheat. And, you know, he he generously offers to cut that debt down. You know, if I had my bank call me today and say, hey, you know what, you've been paying really hard, working really hard and paying off this student loan, Um, you owe this much still, let's just go ahead and say it's now this much money. Do you think you could accomplish that? (laughs) Heck yeah! So, to me, this, you know, if I wasn't told that this man was being a cheat, um, or doing something dishonest, I would think that he was being really generous. (laughs) And shouldn't that be something that we're striving to do and to be? And, 
Um, but then, you know, Jesus says no. It's a difficult thing because this, this, this figure is a steward. He's working with somebody else's wealth. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, that's on the one hand what makes it feel like he's doing additional cheating because it's not exactly his wealth to, to cancel or mm-hmm. to give away. On the other hand, and maybe this is part of what makes Jesus' uh, wording and his, his parable so, I don't know, uh, it keeps poking at me. The whole of the Bible sort of depicts all of our lives as in the role of stewards, and that there's nothing that's really mine. Everything I have is God's. And that in a sense, like, all of my life, all the time, is me doling out God's gifts, not that there's anything that I've earned or that it's all mine. So anytime I'm sharing what's mine, it's not really mine. I'm, I'm giving away what God's given in the first place. And I think there's something there's something to that, that maybe Jesus would have us recognize too. That, And I think this is definitely the way Israel was taught to sort of see itself, that all of your wealth, all your land, everything you have is really God's. God's entrusted it so that you can share with the people around you who are in need. Um that if, if that's how we're called to see ourselves all the time, then all of us are going to be sort of stewards like this, and all the time we're only ever giving away what isn't really ours, but what is God's. And that's maybe a difficult realization. Maybe that makes us a hard saying in a different way, because we like to imagine, this is my hard-earned money, or I, you know, I worked hard for mm-hmm. it, and Jesus kind of would go, nope, nothing you have is actually yours. Everything is really God's. We're at best stewards. The question is whether we are half-decent stewards who use what's been entrusted to us well or whether we're crooks. Um, But that there's no way of getting outside of being a steward if we're followers of Jesus or if we're going to enter into that that mindset, the worldview of the the Old and New Testament, I think. Steve, a little bit ago you were talking about, you know, him... um, the, The way you were talking about this reminded me of the parable of talents. Yeah. And, you know, in the parable of the talents, um, the master who gives out the talents is, is the um, dishonest one mm-hmm. and earns his money in a dishonest way. And, you know, obviously the two, they bring back um, money, you know, they, they earn money, mm-hmm. the master is gone, and then the third does nothing with it. And I, I think um, one of the things this parable is saying, is it's better to try and do something mm-hmm. with what you've been given than to just do nothing with it at all. Yeah. And I think there's some of that sense of like, that Jesus maybe wants us to get outside that fear of, oh, if I don't do anything, at least I'm not sinning, and so therefore I'm not messing up. But like, no, sometimes you have to act. Sometimes you need to step up and act. And it's in, in some cases, it's worse to sit and do nothing because you're afraid of messing up than to swing and sometimes swing big. And in Jesus' sense, swing big for the sake of the kingdom. This yeah. is about like, um, th- there are sometimes where you have to step up and act and to do nothing is a... Is a wor- it's like, I, I'm, I've been thinking lately about... Um, uh, the historical example of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the life of uh, uh, during during World War II, um, and about his involvement trying to resist Hitler and and uh, the the Nazi agenda. And for a while in his wrestlings, there was this: No, I don't want to get involved because it would mean sinning. I don't want to you know rebel against my country or rebel against my government, or I'm not supposed to do those things. I've been raised as a good early 20th century Lutheran that whatever my government does is always right, so I'll just sort of smile and nod my head. And he comes to a point of saying, no, I can't go along with this anymore, and to stay silent is a worse offense to God, is a bigger sin than me being a part of opposing them. Um, and I think there's there's something to that. I think that's, that's also part of what is sometimes a misunderstood bit of Lutheran thinking. There's a famous line of Luther's that always gets butchered about sin boldly, but believe more boldly still. And I think sometimes people hear that as go, see, Luther is like pro-sin, do whatever you want, who cares? That's not what he meant. But th- there are times where, um, there are times where if I'm so afraid of accidentally doing something wrong, or I'm so afraid it might mess up, or something like that, that I sit and do nothing, I'll be sort of sitting in self-righteousness and going, 
well, I didn't want to accidentally give that $5 to a bum who would have used it on booze, so I won't give it to anybody, and thinking that's God, more, God is more pleased. I mean, like, there's so many ways we can justify to ourselves, I didn't do anything, and that, therefore, God loves me, um, as opposed to actually reaching out, and yep, sometimes you're going to get taken advantage of, or sometimes you help somebody out, and they're going to take the money you gave them, and they're going to buy alcohol instead of food or something like that, and yep, sometimes in, in, in life you're going to have the best of intentions and it's going to blow up. Um, but I, I think there's a sense of it's infinitely better. Uh, sometimes the opportunities in front of you to do something good for the sake of the kingdom don't blow up because you're so afraid it might go wrong or you might get it wrong or something like that. I think about evangelism in that sense. <coughs> and a lot of people are so afraid to share the good news of the gospel with somebody else because they're not going to have the right answer, they're not going to say it just right, and so then they just don't say anything at all. Right. Where it's so much better, I think, for us to bumble our way through sharing sure. the gospel and, and trying to get this message across and maybe that person will grab the, the spirit will work in their lives and they'll grab onto something that we said um, that they wouldn't have grabbed onto if we would have just sat back and said nothing sure sure or for that matter am I allowed to reach out to that person or oh would that be bad news because they're not one of those acceptable people I don't want I don't want to get in trouble for you know, mm-hmm. telling those people they're allowed to and you know sometimes maybe it's better to be to take the risk of offering welcome everywhere and again we can be so so afraid of getting you know nick dinged on our heaven points or something and i think i think part of this story is don't try and hide behind sort of the safety of doing nothing and saying well at least i'm not messing up more that yeah. this this guy in the story the the unjust steward knows he's only got a narrow window of time before he can't he, mm-hmm. he can't do what he was doing anymore and he knows to seize the opportunity while he's got it um and I'm not sure we're good at that. I, th- I mean, like a few years ago, it was that popular fad. Everybody was saying, seize the day, that Latin carpe diem, after that movie Dead Poet Society came out. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it got sort of misheard or, or sort of um, popularized. So sort of a seize the day was like, you know, do something whimsical today or, you know, just be fun. And I, I think there's a sense of seizing the day that Jesus has in mind of today there are going to be opportunities to be about kingdom work. And they are worth taking. Don't miss them because you were so afraid of... Um, messing up or getting it wrong or you've got other important busy stuff to do um, I, I think there's that sense of don't don't miss out on the opportunities that are in front of you for kingdom purposes if crooks know how to seize an opportunity in front of them for being crooks why can't the people of God also do that for, for God's purposes as well grace is messy and we, don't, <laughs> we don't like to think of it that way though Like we, we like to think of grace as you know, well God forgives us when we mess up because we're the respectable, we're, we're the good Christian people but grace is messy and grace is lavished freely by Christ and, and by God and so why wouldn't we do the same mm-hmm. but again we think well I, is, is that person worthy of grace? well yes, yes. the answer is always yes, yes. yeah uh, no matter who the person is, no matter what you might think about their politics or their lifestyle or anything, the answer is always yes. And I think that's. The, I think sometimes we're we're deep down we're afraid that really God is a bean counter. I think like there's this like, well, what if it turns out that God really is you know giving me demerits for messing up or you know like that? No, mm-hmm. there's this like leaning completely on. Nope, I'm going to go all all in on grace. All all my chips will be on betting on the grace of God. Um, and that frees. I mean, that really is meant to be freeing. Like I don't have to be constantly worrying. Uh oh, did I mess up? Uh oh! Did I do it wrong or something like that? That that there's almost this um, invitation to risk failing big, <laughs> um, and that 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 sometimes feels like flopping into the arms of Jesus because maybe that's all we ever do. <laughs> 
Um, so we've come past our usual appointed time here today. Um, but uh, many thanks for joining us for this experiment. Uh, we hope you'll join us for further conversations about hard things and watching us do it live with no preparation or guess about what's coming next. Uh, but we hope that you've enjoyed the conversation and uh, share with us some of your um, most curious or thorny hard sayings too. Bye. Bye. See ya.